Well, good evening, everybody. It's good to see you. Uh, according to my little uh, cell phone device where I can find out temperatures, I gather it's about 95 degrees outside, even at 6.30 in the evening. So uh, I'm not going to check that for accuracy. Uh, I'll just stay inside a few more minutes and enjoy uh, the air conditioning of this building from Brown Copal. I can look out and see uh, the houses, the residential area north of the school, uh, some lovely lovely big trees and the like, so this is a pretty pleasant place to be. Uh, I'd like to remind you where we were. Uh, we had left Paul in the city of Rome. He's in some sort of house arrest, it appears. And in the city of Rome, he is um, able to accept and speak to visitors and the like. Uh, in the book of Philippians, we learn of a very close relationship between Paul and the Philippian church. And it appears that specifically during the time of Paul's imprisonment that the Philippian church had several times uh, sent supplies, uh, assistance, perhaps even money to Paul to help him out. They were a supporting congregation. I'd like to pause and make the observation that, uh, of course, mission work does not occur unless people in local congregations, I mean back here in America, back here where the church is big, uh, where it's strong, uh, if, if, if we don't believe in mission work and if we don't support it, if we don't say things to our elders uh, as to how we support mission work, then mission work doesn't happen. Uh, missionaries uh, uh, don't just go overseas by accident. Uh, they need help, they need support, they need moral and often physical support of various kinds. So the church in Philippi had helped the Apostle Paul, and Paul uses a very special word in his epistle to the Philippians as he says, you and I have had fellowship with each other, using the Greek word koinonia. Uh, it appears that the book of Philippians, amongst other things, is a thank you note to the Philippian church for the help that they had given to the Apostle Paul. How did they send this assistance? Uh, well, it wasn't by Western Union. Uh, apparently they didn't have that available in those days. Uh, so what they did was that they sent a man named Epaphroditus. He was one of the members of the church in Philippi, and he uh, went, perhaps even with a party of people, to the city of Rome to deliver the assistance of whatever kind it was to them. Uh, notice, if you would, in chapter 2, 25 through 27, we can see that Epaphroditus uh, uh, came across some misfortune of his own on his way. Paul writes, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. I pause to make the observation Epaphroditus had taken uh, supplies of some kind from Philippi, brought them to Paul in Rome, and now Paul is saying, I'm sending him back. I'm sending him home. It says in verse 26, for he has been longing to see, longing for you and all has been, dis uh, for you all, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Uh, there uh, we note that the unfortunate Epaphroditus, after sending the supplies to Paul in the city of Rome, had fallen sick himself. Now, uh, another writing in, or at least another two writings in uh, the New Testament, uh, give us some clues as to some of the things that might have happened to Paul while he was in Rome and while he was doing that. Please note the uh, map that I supplied. Uh, I have circled the city of Rome over in the boot heel uh, that is a part of the country of Italy. And then if you run your eyes to the right, to the eastern side, uh, you can probably find amongst uh, the various cities of, Asia, of Mysia, Asia, and Phrygia, uh, looking through there just below Phrygia, it's the city of Colossae. Two letters went from Paul 
to Colossae while he was in prison. The first was a letter we know as Colossians, and uh, that is no surprise. Uh, we have a lot of letters written from Paul to churches in various places. But a second letter also went from Paul to the city of Colossae. It was a personal letter that he wrote to a man named Philemon, who was apparently a member of the church in the city of Colossae. And that's where we kind of set up the story, because as you're probably aware, we're talking about the slave Onesimus, who had been owned by Philemon and who had escaped. Uh, I have an image in the PowerPoint uh, of Roman slaves. This is an etching, uh, a frieze, I suppose, that was put into a wall. And I want you to notice that you have uh, a man and a woman who are apparently the slave owners. The, uh, they're both uh, very comfortable. They're sitting on couches. Notice that there are three slaves serving them. Notice how much smaller the three slaves are uh, than the two owners. Of course, slaves were not uh, literally that much smaller than their owners, but that was the way that Romans viewed them. Now, the story of Philemon is indeed a fascinating one. Uh, the book of Philemon was uh, written by Paul uh, perhaps in AD 60, 61, something like that, probably sent along with the letters to the Colossians, uh, one to the church as a whole, and this letter to an individual named Philemon. Would you notice, please, Colossians chapter 4, beginning with verse 7. Colossians 4 and verse 7. Tychicus, he says, will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Now this is a very matter-of-fact statement, and the suggestion appears to be that there are two uh, uh, male carriers in this instance, a gentleman named Tychicus, who will add to the letter that, to the Colossians uh, his own verbal uh, report of how Paul is doing, and then he adds also this Onesimus, uh, this other character. But you see, Onesimus had a second letter. It was a letter to his former slave owner, uh, Philemon. Now, uh, uh, this is probably a good moment to at least spend a little time thinking about slavery in the Roman Empire. Uh, we're told that the growth of the Roman Empire had a background of human suffering which is unimaginable in its degree and extent. This is according to historian Mary Gordon. Uh, I also like a statement from Abraham Lincoln. He says, whenever I hear anyone arguing for slavery, I feel a strong impulse to see it tried on him personally. Uh, clearly, nobody would choose to be a slave uh, if he actually had the ability to make that distinction in his own life. Uh, slavery in the Roman Empire was, uh, was a heavy reality. Uh, one of the fascinating Bible passages that, that indicates this is found in Revelation 18, beginning with verse 11. Now, what's happening in Revelation is that uh, we have this cry uh, of distress as the uh, uh, Babylon the Great um, falls to pieces. And in Revelation 18, we have a list of uh, uh, businesses and trade and commerce that has fallen to pieces because this great uh, uh, empire is falling to pieces. Notice the list of, of businesses that they've lost. Uh, Roman, uh, Revelation 18 and verse 11. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Business is no longer good, is the suggestion. 
cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble. I pause before reading verse 13. Please note uh, that we're listing all kinds of um, things, uh, as the Texans would say, things, uh, things that um, are traded by merchants up and down the known world of that day. Uh, verse 13, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and then he adds, uh, Revelation adds, and slaves, that is human souls. What's fascinating to me about that listing of uh, things that are being traded, or at least are no longer being traded, as Babylon the Great Falls, is the fact that slaves are considered to be things, along with all the other stuff uh, that uh, would have been traded in previous times. Uh, that's a very sad commentary on the view uh, that Romans had on slaves. Slaves could not be legally married. And if a master wanted to marry a slave, he had to free her first. Mostly the arrangements were among the common law variety. In other words, the master, if he found a slave woman attractive to him, uh, would simply take her and have her. Uh, often slaves were well cared for, but only in the way that one might change the oil and filters in one's car uh, so that uh, it might be more productive. So they were well treated only because that was a serious investment and they wanted their investment to be able to work well and hard. Slaves were legally termed persons without the right to refuse. Uh, think about what that statement expresses. Persons without the right to refuse. You could do anything to a slave. You could uh, hit him, you could punch him, you could starve him, you could do anything. You could humiliate him because he didn't have the right to say no. Uh, they could be sold at an auction, the way one might sell piglets or cattle. Uh, in fact, pigs and cattle would be sold on the same auction uh, floor as slaves. They would even be disposed of in the way one might drown an unwanted cat. Often slaves were sadistically treated. Having absolute power towards another person tends to make him disdainful of the other person's feelings and rights. Uh, there's a story of Hadrian, the emperor, who in a fit of temper took out the eye of one of his slaves with a pen. Uh, extraordinary to think that you might uh, make somebody blind in one eye uh, just because you're not having a good day. A runaway slave had few options. Some joined bandits roaming the countryside, but Roman legions usually caught up with this group and destroyed them. A captured slave might be put in the mines for the rest of his life. Often they were severely beaten, then given a mark on the face where he would always be identified as a runaway slave and thus a flight risk uh, for a second time. The relationship between master and slave was characterized by fear. I know that might surprise you for me to say this, but the picture this, the masters um, always in, attempted to instill fear in the slaves in order to keep order. Uh, but notice that the masters also were fearful of being overwhelmed by a slave revolt. There were so many slaves uh, that if they ever knew how many there were of them, they might rise up against Rome. And so there was a, a sense of fear on both sides, it seems. Uh, in order to do this, uh, uh, they dealt with misbehavior very harshly. Uh, there was a case arose that arose before the Roman Senate when a prefect of the provinces was assassinated by his slave. Uh, the response was to kill all of his slaves, 400, in order to ensure that this would never happen again. I'm sure that was a lesson that the slaves remembered. The book of Philemon, and Philemon himself, was apparently a wealthy man and a slaveholder. Uh, one of his slaves, Onesimus, had apparently escaped and run away to Rome. Uh, perhaps he was hoping to melt into the crowds of the most populous city in the world. Uh, there he had met 
and been converted by the Apostle Paul. Uh, please refer back to the book of Philemon itself. We're going to spend just a little bit of time in it. Philemon chapter 1 and verse 10. Paul writes, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Uh, there it appears to be that uh, Paul's become the spiritual father of this runaway slave. Uh, so Paul meets a slave. I don't know if the slave too had been captured and put in prison and that's where he had met Paul. We don't know how that happened. But using tact and humor, Paul seeks to get Philemon, the legal slave owner of Onesimus, to do the right thing and free Onesimus. The letter revolves around a pun. Uh, we read this in uh, Philemon chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Let me read it. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Now the pun here that we don't necessarily get in English is around the word useful. The name Onesimus means useful. Perhaps he had been a useful slave before he escaped. Perhaps there were skills that he had or a willingness or a strength that he had uh, that uh, had been proved useful. And so he was nicknamed Onesimus, useful. Uh, Paul says, but he was, he was not useful to you for a while. Clearly when Onesimus escaped and fled, uh, he would no longer be useful. Uh, Paul ends with a not so subtle reminder in verse 19 of how much Philemon owes, owes Paul himself. Please notice verse 19. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of my own, uh, of your owing me, even your own hand. Uh, Paul uh, suggests that he will actually pay for uh, Philemon, for Onesimus' freedom, if that's necessary, and he even takes the pen from his amanuensis and says, here, I'm signing my name to this statement. I, Paul, am writing it with my own hand. I love a phrase that is used in the book of Philemon that tells us a great deal about the Christian life and what it's supposed to be. Uh, go back, if you would, uh, to a statement that was made in verse 11. Philemon 1, verse 11. Formerly he, that is Onesimus, was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Apparently after his conversion, Onesimus became a, a very important help to the Apostle Paul as well. But I want you to notice, notice that word formally. Uh, there may be different words that different translations use, but, but notice the idea that, that once or formally or at one time he was this way and then something had changed. Paul uses this term for uh, the lives of individuals who come into contact with Jesus and he tends to use this phrase saying formerly they were this way and now they are another way, an improved way, a better way. Please note some other passages where this actually happens. Colossians 3 verses 7 and 8. Colossians chapter 3 verses 7 and 8. Here Paul says, in these you too once walked when you were living in them, the word, the phrase once walked is you formerly walked. That's the way you once were. But now you must put away them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. What Paul is suggesting is that uh, formerly they, they used these um, evil words, these uh, evil actions, but now uh, they've changed. they become Christian. And so there is a change in the way that they live. Just like formerly Onesimus was useless and now he's useful. Please note also Ephesians 2, verses 11 and 13. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 13. Here Paul is talking about the change in uh, Gentiles from where they had once been as pagans to become Christians. 
Therefore, remember that at one time, and that's our word, formerly, formerly you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. And then drop your eyes down to verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Please note that Paul is using this sort of contrast. Formerly you were this way in the way that you live, but now things have changed. Your life has improved. You become better people. And finally, in this regard, Ephesians 5 and verse 8. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. For at one time, Paul says, or formerly, if you want to put it that way, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Uh, there again, Paul is drawing that contrast between uh, their lifestyles prior to becoming a Christian and the way they were now. You were formerly this way, but now walk as children of light. Now, what I'd like to suggest in this whole scenario is that there is supposed to be uh, a distinguishable change in the way that we live between our old lives as non-Christians to the way that we live now. There should be a growth and a development. Formerly, we were this way, but we have grown beyond that is the Apostle Paul's suggestion. Paul places further pressure on Philemon in the book of Philemon by promising that he'll visit Colossae soon. That's interesting. Here is a prisoner suggesting that he will be able to leave his imprisonment and go back and visit people. He says, I expect to visit Colossae soon and I expect to stay at your house, Philemon. Uh, this is found in Philemon chapter 1, verse 22. At the, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me. I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. I look at that and I say to myself, hmm, apparently the Apostle Paul expected to be released. And he says, one of the first things I will do is go to Colossae. And I want to say, your house, Philemon. And, and uh, the pressure is, of course, uh, uh, when he gets there, he might even say, well, and by the way, how is that young man Onesimus that I sent to you? What is he doing now? How is he living? Now, uh, these are the two uh, incidents that I thought I would mention while Paul was in prison in Rome at the end of the book of Acts. The uh, connection between Paul and the Philippian church and the, collection, and the connection between Paul and Philemon and Onesimus. All of these are incidents that occurred more or less in this time. Now, go back, if you would, to Acts chapter 28. And what I'd like to do is read that last verse or perhaps the last two verses of that particular book. Uh, it, it, it's the end of the story of Acts, at any rate, though not the end of the story of Paul. Uh, notice in verse 13 of Acts 28, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. Notice uh, the freedom of people to come and go from Paul's residence. Proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Uh, what's significant is that very last word, the very last word in the book of Acts is unhinderedly. I know that's not necessarily a word in English, but, but think about it. He was not being hindered. Uh, he uh, continued to preach um, uh, day by day, unhinderedly. The book of Acts ends with the Apostle Paul in the very center of the Roman world, uh, preaching unhinderedly, reaching people with the gospel of Christ. Now, uh, after the book of Acts, of course, we are left to extra-biblical sources, uh, church historians and church fathers and other individuals, tradition, if you'd like to look at it that way, uh, to surmise what happened to Paul after Acts closes. Eusebius uh, states that the trial took uh, two years and that Paul was released. 
Uh, yes, he was released, thus making Luke's hard work in drawing up all the defense worthwhile, you would think. But, but what we've got here is uh, perhaps Paul did go back to Colossae and see Philemon. Perhaps he did go to these other uh, cities. Perhaps he even went to Spain. We don't know this for sure, of course. If Acts ends around AD 62 and Paul is released, it's interesting to ask what he did. Perhaps he went to Spain. According to Romans 15:23, that's what he wanted to do. Uh, then perhaps he returned to Crete Crete and to the Aegean. Uh, the Aegean would be the sea around which most of Paul's work in the missionary journeys were, with uh, Asia Minor on the east side of the Aegean and Greece on the west side. Uh, perhaps that's what happened. And then we're told, according to Eusebius, that Paul's final arrest was under Nero in AD 67. His later imprisonment seems to be a much more serious one than the one we read of in Acts. Uh, so uh, we'll come to that in just a few minutes. Uh, uh, here we speak of the last days of the Apostle Paul. In Acts 28, we had read that the imprisonment was not a terribly difficult one, uh, but Paul uh, could accept visitors, he could teach, he could uh, uh, at least receive people uh, coming and going. But most scholars believe he was released, resumed his mission work until a much more serious imprisonment occurred uh, around AD 67 or 68. Now, 2 Timothy 1 verses 15 through 18 expresses how serious this might have been. Uh, we are reading a little bit between the lines, but it does help us at least understand some of the background. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15. Paul says, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Philetus and Hermogenes. Then he adds, may the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus. Why would the Lord want to be giving mercy to this individual? For he often refreshed me, we read, and was not ashamed of my chains. Notice, but when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Now, reading a little bit between the lines, it seems as if the Apostle Paul this second time had just disappeared in Rome. Um, this would happen in nations where uh, freedoms and rights were not necessarily respected. Uh, you know, somebody just disappears. He's taken by uh, uh, um, secret police or taken by the forces um, loyal to the government, and, and they just are hidden somewhere. And they don't feel like they have the uh, a responsibility to tell anybody, fam friends or family about where their loved one is. And so this individual Onesiphorus, probably to uh, great risk to his own life, searched up and down the city of Rome until he found uh, the Apostle Paul. We don't know where he was, but uh, this time uh, the Apostle Paul is, is in a much more serious situation. Second Timothy is probably the final book that the Apostle Paul wrote. There is a great deal of pathos as we read this book, you can just tell uh, how desperate the Apostle Paul is to say the important things that he needs to say to Timothy, uh, the, the sort of handing on of the baton uh, from the older missionary to the younger preacher. Uh, this sense that the Apostle Paul's legacy uh, will be something that is unknown. He'll have to hand that out uh, later on. Very likely the last thing that Paul ever wrote, AD 66 to 67. You see an image of Nero uh, down below. This would be uh, the Caesar at that particular time. You might observe, uh, if you look at his face, that he has very uh, uh, fat jowls, uh, very thick neck. Uh, Nero ended up uh, weighing something like uh, 450 pounds. The man liked his food. Uh, you may recall several accounts of Nero uh, from various sources. I have an image of Rome burning while Nero fiddles. Uh, uh, there Nero is um, uh, with a, uh, well, it's actually a harp, in the, according to this picture. And you can see uh, behind him, 
the city of Rome burning. Actually, this is a reference uh, not to Nero's actually playing an instrument, uh, but a reference to the fact that when the city of Rome began to burn, Nero hesitated to help out. Uh, we don't know if it was because he was uncaring and he didn't care about people losing their homes, the, the tenements, the poor people in the slums of Rome, uh, losing their homes and their friends and their families in the fire, or perhaps it was just that he froze, he was petrified, he didn't know what to do, uh, or he couldn't lead the forces to go out there and, and rescue and uh, 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 the, the houses and the people from there. We don't know which one it was, but then the statement was made that uh, well, Nero fiddled while Rome burnt. Although Acts ends with Paul in prison, this is merely house arrest, and, and now clearly the situation in Second Timothy is more serious. He's in a prison cell. He's chained like a common criminal. Uh, his friends have a hard time finding him because he's disappeared. And he notices uh, in chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, that the end is at hand. We'll read that in just a moment. Paul is alone. Philegius, Hermogenes, and Demas have deserted him. Please note Roman, uh, 1st, 2nd Timothy, chapter 1, verse 15. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Philegius and Hermogenes. And we also read in chapter 4, verse 10, that there are other people who deserted Paul at this particular point. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. We don't know if these latter two, uh, uh, Crescens and Titus, necessarily deserted Paul, but they certainly were not in Rome at this particular time. Uh, Tychicus, uh, uh, Tychicus, Titus, and Crescens are away, but then Demas deserts because he loves the world. Apparently he uh, quit Christianity and went back to uh, the old lifestyle. Paul is feeling very much alone, and he desperately wants Timothy to join him. And the timing is urgent. Please note, for instance, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 9, uh, where Paul says, do your best to come to me soon. Uh, there seems to be uh, a sense that uh, if, uh, if Timothy dwaddles, if he takes his good time coming to Rome, that will be too late. And then in verse 21, we read another hint. It says, do your best to come before winter. Uh, Eubulus sends greetings to you as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia or, and all the brothers. Uh, there again, Paul is begging on, on Timothy to come soon. Winter appears to be a factor, but there may be something else. Uh, here is a man who knows the date of his death. Uh, that sort of narrows it down. Most of us do not know when we will die. Most of us have um, uh, only clues, perhaps, uh, before we're going to die, but a condemned man, a man who has been found guilty and who has been sentenced, uh, in this case by Nero probably, uh, would know the day of his death. And so Paul seems to be very aware, aware of this indeed. So in Second Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6, we read of what appears to have been an earlier trial. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, he says, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But then there seems to be a second trial, and this was the fatal one. This was the one that uh, uh, would see Paul finally executed. Only Luke is with him. Please notice chapter 4 and verse 11. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful uh, to me for my ministry. You might recall uh, several PowerPoint slide sets ago. We talked about John Mark, the hapless young man who had deserted the party and had not impressed Paul particularly. Uh, he ended up being a traveling companion of Silas. But it looks like John Mark has found his way back into Paul's heart at the end of his life. Uh, here he says, Luke alone is with me. And then he's begging uh, Timothy to come and to bring, of all people, 
John Moy. Now, if you think to yourself, uh, at the day of my death, if I knew I was going to die, who would I like to have uh, surrounding me? And clearly the answer would be the very closest people to me in my life. And it's remarkable to think that those closest people in Paul's life were Luke, uh, the faithful chronicler of Paul's events and actions, uh, Timothy, whom Paul hopes will come in time uh, to be with him, and John Mark. Uh, that also is extraordinary to me. Uh, three things Timothy is supposed to bring to Rome. Uh, you'll notice this in verses 11 through 13 of um, chapter 4. Paul says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for my ministry. Tychicus I sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I met, uh, left with Carpus and Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. I suggested that there are three things that Timothy was supposed to bring. First of all was John Mark, uh, bring that individual, and then a cloak he had left at Troas, presumably in a, a prison cell. Paul is no uh, longer able to access a, a, a warm coat, uh, presumably, presumably they did not have central heating, and so Paul says, please bring me that coat. And then number three, the books and the parchments. Uh, uh, my heart warms when I think about the Apostle Paul saying to himself, if I'm going to sit in a cell and if I'm going to spend my last days waiting for the end, I may as well have my reading material. I picture Paul sitting down with books and parchments. Uh, surely these would be books that had to do uh, with, with the Bible, uh, the Old Testament perhaps, something like that, or some of Paul's own writings, and he would be working on them. Now, uh, there are three sources of Paul's last days uh, uh, as we come to the end of his story. Uh, Paul was executed during the persecution under Nero. Uh, uh, we think about the fire of July 18, AD 64, in the Circus Maximus. Uh, that was what we had suggested a moment ago, that Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Uh, there were three sources in Paul's last days. One of them, of course, is the epistle to Timothy, uh, Second Timothy itself. And then number two, Clement of Rome, who was an early church uh, father. And thirdly, the Miratorian Canon. Uh, these were three sources that talk about it. Now, the theory is, at least the most common theory, is that the Apostle Paul was beheaded on the third milestone outside the city of Rome on the Ostian Way. Now, the final two things I would like to do is to do this. Number one, speak about five characteristics of the Apostle Paul. And then number two, read that final section of the Apostle Paul in the book of Second Timothy as he writes the very final things that he ever wrote in this life. Uh, so the five characteristics of Paul. Why was it important even to study the life of this individual? Number one, he was impressive neither in appearance nor speech. Here is a man who, if he was impressive in any sense of the word, uh, it wasn't those physical attributes. It was something else. Number two, he was a man driven by zeal. I don't suppose there is a character in Christianity who compares with the Apostle Paul with this drive, with this zeal, with this desire to serve the Lord. Now, I do not think that guilt or bribery or promises of great things would be sufficient to drive any man to do what Paul did. Nothing but the love and forgiveness of the Lord God could have driven this man to do what he did. I have often wondered to myself, what is it that we're missing uh, when we see Paul and his zeal for God and the way that we live? And I do not mean this as a criticism of others. I want all of us to look deep into our own hearts, to ask ourselves that question. Number three, 
he went from unbendable to most adaptable. Think about the apostle, I'm sorry, Saul of Tarsus persecuting the church, saying, no, Christianity's wrong. No, Christ was a, a fraud. Uh, he, should be, he should have been punished uh, as he was. And then picture the apostle Paul in the end being the man who was all things to most people, uh, uh, to all people. The ability to go up and down the known world and taking on the customs and the languages and activities of various cultures and then to influence and reach them for the gospel. Number four, he was a prolific and eloquent author. Uh, what, how much more poverty-stricken would our Bibles be without the writings of Paul? How much would we have lost without uh, the thrills of reading 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter to love, or Romans chapter 8 to find out that nothing could separate us from the love of God? Uh, how, how much we would have lost by not being able to read Philippians with its urgings for us to, to rejoice in the Lord, and, to, and again I say rejoice. Think about how great the contributions of his writings were. And number five, he was a man absolutely without hypocrisy. The word that Paul, of course, uses is to say, I lived according to my conscience in God's sight all of my life. Certainly that was the case of the Apostle Paul. Other people might put on pretensions. Other people might, might behave in a way that they didn't really believe. But the Apostle Paul, once convinced that something was true, would live it from the bottom of his heart. Uh, if people would say in Paul's day, oh, Christians are nothing but hypocrites, you could point to the Apostle Paul and say, look at that guy. He is the real thing. He's the genuine article. He really is living the Christian life the way it's supposed to be. So those are the important characteristics of Paul. What I'd like to do is turn your attention to the passage in Second Timothy chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Here are the Apostle's final words to Timothy. Uh, here is a man who knows he will die. Here is a man who is praying and hoping that Timothy, his good friend and his protege, will come to him in time before the execution. So we read in 4 verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. One of the things that the Apostle Paul wants to do is to pass on that great legacy of mission work and preaching. And notice that, that Paul is, is convinced that preaching the word is what is necessary. Yes, certainly we can use illustration and humor perhaps to get our point across, but the foundation of the gospel preacher has to be the word of God. Uh, whether youth minister or Bible class teacher or pulpit preacher uh, or older Christian what we teach needs to be the word. We are ministers of the word. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. What Paul is suggesting is uh, be ready to preach when people want to hear it and be ready to preach when they don't want to hear it. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Notice that the preacher's task is both to correct people and to encourage them and to teach them. Uh, for a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into miss. Paul's concern is uh, that, that uh, the uh, process of leaving the true Christian life uh, will begin not in the pulpit, but in the pew, he suggests that it will be people who will draw around themselves those kinds of preachers. They will listen to the eloquence of the preachers. They'll listen to uh, the worldly wisdom of those preachers and not to the truth, the biblical truth of what those preachers might or might not be preaching. He says in, in verse 4, And all will turn away from listening to the truth and wonder into myths. As for you, 
Always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. There is the older preacher passing on the charge to the younger band and saying, you need to carry out this ministry. Please continue the work that I've done. Then in verse, uh, I, I'm impressed with that thought because it occurs to me that I am no longer a young preacher. I'm an older preacher, and I am now at Fried Hardman uh, hoping and trying to pass the baton on to another generation. It's my prayer that work that uh, people before me and handed to me to do that I've done faithfully and that I will hand it on to others as well. So in verse 6, the well-known ending of Paul, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. He starts out with the language of sacrifice. If you can imagine somebody having a, a glass or a, a bowl full of wine and pouring it out, uh, emptying it completely in a sacrifice. And Paul says, that's what I've been. If any man's life was characterized by a complete emptying of himself, it would be the apostle Paul. He adds, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He uses several different analogies, but what he's doing is he's saying uh, that, that he's done his job. Uh, he's at the end of the race. Uh, so many people start the race, but they don't finish it. They give up. They quit. Paul went all the way to the end. Verse 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me also, but to all who love his appearing. Uh, here Paul is suggesting that he's ready to receive the, the laurel wreath in ancient Greece. Uh, the winner in a race or in a contest would have that uh, a wreath put on his head as the crown. And so Paul is saying that that's what he's hoping for when he dies. Verse 9, do your best to come to me soon. We've suggested already uh, that he's trying to get Timothy to come to him before the execution date. For Demas, in love of this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. I'm impressed that uh, Paul's great friend and chronicler, Luke himself, is still with him. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in my ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he is strongly opposed to our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against him. I had this image of the Paul, of Paul the apostle standing quite alone before the dignitaries of Rome. Verse 17, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Uh, probably this is a, a figurative lion, not a literal lion, though we don't know that for sure. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I'd like to end with a, an event that happened to me as I look at this because it reminds me of what is at stake when we think about the life of the Apostle Paul. Uh, I was listening many years ago at a graduate school that is not associated with Churches of Christ, a very well-known author, uh, a very well-known scholar, a very well-known commentator came to this particular school and gave a series of talks on First and Second Timothy and Titus, uh, what we know sometimes as the pastoral epistles. Uh, if I gave the name of this uh, scholar, you would probably recognize it because he's written some very good commentaries, some very uh, respected commentaries on a lot of biblical writings.
But this man uh, spoke three or four days at this uh, uh, seminary, and he uh, talked about the, the three books and what lay behind them. Uh, his theory was that the books of First and Second Timothy uh, were written by admirers of Paul, much later than the Paul, Paul's life. Uh, and they were trying to make out as if they were the Apostle Paul. And, and so they put in these personal uh, antidotes in the story to make it seem like Paul was actually writing it. Now, I remember at the end of the uh, uh, sessions that uh, we had a questions and answer uh, time. And so this young lady raised her hand. She was working on a Master of Divinity at the seminary. And she said, well, you know, I'm a little surprised at some of the things that you said. She says, especially in Second Timothy, uh, when, uh, when you read these personal accounts and these statements Paul makes about various people and is begging um, uh, Timothy to come to him and, and, and the loneliness of being deserted by other individuals, it just gives more meaning to the book of Second Timothy. Uh, but the way you're presenting it is that that uh, this was a fake epistle. And I remember this great scholar looking at her and saying, well, if you're going to take those things literally in First and Second Timothy, you'll also have to uh, 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 take it that in First Timothy 2, that women should keep silent in churches. And you'd also have to have elders and deacons in every congregation of the Lord's church. And, and you, wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't find any church that does that. I remember, remember sitting there stunned because I thought to myself, number one, of course, I know of a church that does exactly that. Uh, a church, a fellowship that asks people to go back to the Bible and speak where it speaks and be silent where it is silent. A people who have a deep and profound respect for, for God's word and its inspiration and its accuracy. Uh, it would be church, churches of Christ, of course. And I thought to myself, we have a great and valuable blessing. Because when we read the pages of Scripture and when we read of Jesus or Moses or Joshua or indeed Paul the Apostle, we read the events that really did happen. And we read of God's hand on these people, changing them and driving them and motivating them and making them better. And so when I look at Second Timothy, I do indeed see the last writings and the last breaths of a truly great man and a man we should emulate. I appreciate everything that you've done in the last last several days listening to what I'm doing, uh, what I'm saying, and I hope it's been worthwhile to you. I would ask God's blessings on you. Uh, I hope that in your travels throughout Europe, you'll have the opportunity to step in places where the Apostle Paul stepped and to look around and see the scenes, the mountains and, and the buildings and, and the kinds of people that he must have seen. And I hope that not only will your uh, imagination be lit by what you see, but that your heart, too, will be, and that it will change your life. God bless you. God bless you, and goodbye.